No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and well would play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over, and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady Hello and welcome to the Tree at the Back podcast. I'm joined this week by Phil Green and Inda Higgins as usual. How are you, lads? Good, thanks. Well, lads, how's the form? All good, no. This week we'll be wrapping up a busy couple of weeks on the Irish football front as the League of Ireland hemorrhages talent, but uh, a little bit further afield than what we're used to. We'll be taking a look about at the Euro 2028 bid with the UK Football Associations. We've got people talking today on where FAI's priorities should be laying. And we'll also be taking a look at the Irish senior side itself as Stephen Kenny moves to replace yet another member of his coaching staff as the highly rated Anthony Barry leaves for the world number one Belgium and Ireland's next opponents there coming up in March and we'll also be keeping a close eye on our, the FEI's tr- strategic review and their targets ahead of uh, 2025 I think is their uh, is their aim there as that's unveiled tonight we'll be keeping a, a close eye on any updates as we record and uh, we'll be chatting about those as things come true but lads first of all I think a good place to start is the African Cup of Nations final last night Egypt versus Senegal um, I mean, if you were if you were writing fiction on this, or if you were kind of booking, a, a, as I said, a WrestleMania main event, I don't think you'd you'd look much further than uh, Mo Salah versus Sadio Mane to be in the finale of this one. And obviously, you have the, the Liverpool connection to you know friends who've done so much at the club. They've won the Champions League. They've won the Premier League. They've shot the light out, lights out for the last couple of years. But kind of underpinning all that over the past couple of years, as this kind of this undercurrent of, of of rivalry. I mean, there's been you know talk of, of feuds between the two of them. You know, one not willing to assist the other, um, and I think it all boiling down to a, an African Cup of Nations where you have, I mean, two entire countries on each of their shoulders, uh, a mammoth amount of pressure and expectation, and um, I think as as the game wore on. I didn't really mind who who won, but I think as we were approaching um, extra time, and I think it was going to be Egypt's fourth extra time in a row, and I was like, "Jesus, I don't, I don't think Egypt should be winning here." I think, I think Senegal have been the better team overall over the past couple of weeks, and uh, um, obviously we'll get to the penalty, uh, the penalty order, which has become a, bit, a huge talking point coming out of this. But um, Sadio Mane's penalty, having already missed one earlier on in the game. Um, a bit of venom behind that one, I think, and uh, uh, I think he, he just wanted to, to 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 put everything he had behind it. And I don't know was he um, picturing Mo's face on the ball or something, but uh, yeah, he sure he sure put a lot into that Phil. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, watching Manny watch the penalties was amongst the like least comfortable I've been watching a match in a long time. Like, you could see 
the physical man toll. was stressed. He was it was terrible. Like it was honestly, it was a little distressing. Like insofar as you can be distressed in football, with like n- not relating to anything serious, it like he looked in bits. Like he like not just a normal sort of like pained expression at watching penalties, but standing by your teammates, like walking around, arms folded. Like you could feel the weight of it on him. I think he felt like maybe a few people felt that he'd missed the moment of the match because. <clears throat> Senegal had, did have their chances afterwards, but really, I mean, it was the guilt edge chance in a game that, other than that, kind of featured a lot of Senegalese players getting booted up in the fucking air. Um, and, it, like, I think it was really wearing down on him. Like you said, the, the weight of the country on him, having lost the last final, uh, knowing that they were probably the best squad at the tournament in terms of talent, um, but knowing that they were also facing up against probably the best individual player and now in a penalty shootout and the lottery that it brings, it was actually a little <laughs> uncomfortable. So l- like you, as a Liverpool fan, I was kind of you know relatively open to whoever probably had a slight preference for Senegal, having them not having won before. But by the time Mane was coming to take his penalty, I just wanted more than Anton for him to be all right. <laughs> like he just, I don't know how he would have handled missing, uh, having already missed in normal time. So I actually ended up being quite a, a stressful watch in my house. I probably celebrated a little bit more for Sofferstein than I then I think my fiance expected me to for you know a penalty in you know an intercontinental tournament that that I in theory don't have any stakes in. But um, I was actually fully bought into Senegal by the end, and it was mostly just so that Manny would feel alright about himself. So um, yeah, like like you said, he he fairly put everything he had into the kick. I think um, and I think psychologically it's great for him. I think if you talk about a WrestleMania main event, I think Salah might be about to have a bit of a heel turn now. I think he might um, be on a bit of a tear. There's word that he's gonna <laughs> work, just word he wants to play against Leicester on Thursday, and um, so I would imagine that uh, Premier League defenses want to watch out because I don't think he's going to be in great form after this. And um, so yeah, like I mean, I mean sorry, go on. I mean, if you're Klopp and you have. Salah coming back with a point to prove. I mean, fair enough, you want to rest him, but I think I think you just have to throw him in and let him at it. Oh, I don't think it. I don't think it'd be worth your club's time trying to trying to tell him not to play. I mean, you know, there's there's other games you can pick and choose, but I think maybe in in the first instance, let him come back against Leicester, give him kind of sixty minutes to torment Dewsbury Hall and Sayunchu and whoever else gets put out in front of him, and uh, let him kind of exercise a few of those demons. I think might be the best way to go about it. because um, like you say, no more than Mane. Um, maybe even more, given that the kind of the gap between Salah and the rest of the Egypt squad, I think he felt a lot of pressure. You could kind of see that in the GQ article. You can see it in the fact that how many how many uh, ads he appears in in Egypt and all the rest of it, and how how popular he is there. I think he probably felt the pressure uh, of on of the weight of expectation, the idea that he's you know he's being talked about as the best player in the world, but. Uh, in, in an African context, he needed to have an Afcon to be ta- talked about amongst the true greats of the continent. He doesn't have that now. He mightn't get one. He, like you know, I mean, it was a great chance to get one. I'll put it that way. So I, I think he was definitely bearing it quite, quite hard as well. You could see post game, Manny trying to talk to him. Salah didn't really want to know about it. So um, I, I think, in, as angry as he'll be, there'll probably be a natural period of deflation for him. Um, but I suppose ultimately given how Senegal approached the game, given how Egypt approached the game and the tournament, as you said, Kev, I'm probably happier with the outcome for the sake of football as well. I admire both of your ambitions that losing a tournament final will inspire club performance, (laughs) considering what Maguire, Shaw, Sancho and Rashford have produced since coming back from the Euros, you know? (laughs) 
but uh, maybe maybe the Mo Salah is coming back to a slightly different setting. But uh, you know, it's it's tough to replicate um, tournament performance slash grief uh, and take it out on um, you know local opposition. But listen, I have no doubt Salah will, especially against Leicester, considering their current form. But it was a really interesting matchup uh, in the final. I mean, Senegal's starting eleven in particular. Uh, really is far more impressive than what Egypt have put together. And we spoke about this at the start of the tournament, I think offline, that this Egypt hype really was heavily built on the back of Salah. When you look at the rest of their starting 11 and their squad, I mean, I don't think it was even in the top four or five squads in the entire tournament. Uh, And a lot of their performances kind of proved that they were just stuttering through all the time. Almost reminds me a bit of Croatia in, in the World Cup a few years ago, where they played so much extra time that by the final you just didn't have any faith that they'd be able to deliver. And again, we spoke with our guest a few weeks ago. The pressure on Salah to deliver, not so much just because he's obviously one of the best in the world at the moment, but it's such a difficult squad to carry on his back. And we've seen that pressure in the past when they qualified for the World Cup and turned up in Russia really struggling. Whereas. Senegal seem to be a far better unit, and even with Mane's distress, um, probably worthy winners overall. It was it was an interesting tournament in the terms of it started off very slow, and then out of nowhere it picked up with the you know excitement of controversial refereeing and this this fest of goals, and then by the end everybody seemed to because of the amount of extra time and penalties we seem to have in those last cluster of games, everybody seemed to run out of steam a bit. So it wasn't overly surprising that the match did go to penalties, but I was. Similar to Phil, heavily invested in Mane getting over the line just because that amount of stress on one person. It did remind me of Drogba's miss years ago for the Ivory Coast. Thankfully, he was able to redeem himself a few years later and, you know, it it worked out well for Mane in the end. Um, A bit frustrated at Watford trying to um, congratulate (laughs) the Senegalese players and particularly Sar after doing everything they could to block him to, to go into the tournament. But again, we've discussed the morality in football several times this season in particular and no surprise there but it, I was delighted for him in particular and, and Idris Agay as well who's had had a bit of a struggle in Paris but I think he was you know a fantastic footballer so it, it just seemed that the timing was right for for this Senegal team to to win a tournament and and I was really heavily invested in them by the end. And what did you make of the penalty situation? So it was Egypt's fourth extra time in a row I think three of those went to penalties uh, in the second uh, in each of the, the the two previous times before the final um, Salah won the toss and chose to go second mm. which was teeing him him up to be essentially the fifth taker or, or the tenth taker uh, if it goes down to him in, the, in terms of the last penalty um, it obviously worked each of those times yeah. um, helped in part by, by the goalkeeper Gabaski who I thought had a really good tournament. He um, he came in for the injured number one, I think, in the Ivory Coast game. It might have been the game before that. And a big, massive goalkeeper. And uh, it turned out, <laughs> I think he saved eight or nine penalties over the course of the tournament. So uh, um, a pretty good one for him. But this time around, Salah didn't even get a chance to to, to place the ball. I mean, it, it backfired on Ronaldo before. I think it was... Yeah, against Spain, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, against Spain, yeah. He... And now... And now, obviously, you know, it's come to bite Salah. I mean, they wouldn't have been there if he had possibly tried a different approach. You know, 
if nothing broken, don't fix it, uh, essentially. But, I mean, it is a little bit embarrassing in hindsight that you have your best player yet to take a penalty while Man or Manny and, and the Senegalese crowd are off celebrating the, the win. Yeah, firstly, just on Gabal, I think he got a 10 out of 10 rating on Sofa score for the match. And there's a kind of a meme doing the rounds already where he's accepting man in the match in tears, which is... Uh, Pretty devastating for him, but an incredible story, as you said, coming in um, only because the first choice keeper got injured. But I've never been in favour, really, since that Ronaldo against Spain incident. I think it was, you're right, Euro 2012, where leaving your best player to last. I mean, if your best player isn't in the first three penalties, I think you're always risking the chance that he won't get to um, take a penalty. And again, the the pressure of going second, I mean, not to bring everything back to United, but, uh, you know, I think. Bruno flipped and we went second in the Europa League final and we saw how that turned out. Um, and I think actually we did again against Borough last week. So talk about not learning from your lessons. But I, I just thought it was completely bizarre. I would have had Salah certainly first or maybe third, uh, which is statistically proven to be the most significant penalty in the five. But I, I was shocked that they left him to the last. Um, I know Senegal left Sané to fifth, or Mane, excuse me, to the fifth. But it's an extremely risky approach and, and certainly not one that I don't think anyone would um, advise going forward. So very surprised. I know it worked for them in the previous shootouts, so it's tough to criticise it too much. But I think in the final, it's always a very different situation. And also, I think it would have been a sign of leadership as well. Um, Not that he isn't a leader for this Egypt team, but again, it just would have been something for his teammates to, you know, almost piggyback on if he had gone first or second. So really, really surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one, Phil, because like, I think the the thought process behind it is if it goes down to the fifth penalty that Salah trusts himself over the goalkeeper, um, might have had to reevaluate that considering how good Gabeski had been in the previous uh, penalty shootouts. He might have, you know what, I'll, I'll give you that one and I'll go fourth or third or something. But um, I mean, t- you know, because it had already worked, I don't. I don't blame him. I, I. I. I mean, I imagine it's his choice. He. He sets the tone. If he wants to go fifth, he'll go fifth. No one's going to talk him out of that. But, I mean, it worked before, so I think no harm in going for it again. Um, I mean, some of the penalties that were missed were quite poor. I thought. Um, but, I mean, in terms of like next week, I mean, he's already apparently spoken with the club. He wants to come back immediately, as you said, back in for the Leicester game. Um, I mean, uh, when Manny come, rocks back in, I mean, there was, there was photos circling of him uh, with the, the trophy in, in bed last night, um, looking pretty pretty comfortable in himself. Do you think that's going to be a, a fraudy handshake when the, when the two of them are back training, or do you think it'll be uh, as if nothing ever happened? I'd imagine it'll be a little sore for Salah. I mean, you know, I speak with my decades of experience of having won and lost international tournaments as a professional footballer, but I'd imagine um, it'll be a little sore for Salah initially. But I do think... So once they got to the final, the two sides, it was going to be one of them delighted and one of them really dejected. And I think this way around is probably a better outcome for Liverpool just because... Not to say that Mane won't, wouldn't let it fuel him, but it, he is the type of character I think who could go more into himself rather than Salah who you know you can see from even his increased presence in media again that GQ interview he's on a bit of a kind of a of, of a tear commercially 
profile-wise as well as football-wise this year. I think he's really making an effort to make a stand for that kind of top echelon status that, that, that he thinks he deserves. So I think with his mentality, it's probably better for from purely from a Liverpool point of view that it's the other way around, or that it's this way around rather than the other way. I think they might have struggled to get the best out of Mane had he lost, regardless of whether he missed the decisive penalty or not. I just mean if he if his side had lost the game, I think it could have been worse. Um, but I do think, like you saw Salah won a couple of years of African Footballer of the Year, then Mane won it, um, and that really kind of spurred Salah on and vice versa. So I do think there is a genuine rivalry between them. I mean, they're, best, they're, they're the best, two best African players of the last five or six years. I think there is a genuine rivalry and cachet there to that that maybe doesn't exist as much in just a European context because I think we see the European game as being very kind of worldwide or whatever. We'd never call somebody just the best European player. We always call them the best player in the world. But I do think from a, a Mane and Salah point of view, I think that rivalry was going to be there regardless. I think whichever one of them won, I think there was going to be fuel uh, for, for the other guy. So I think that there might be a little kind of bit of frostiness. I'd say Mane probably wouldn't want to be rubbing it in too much when he comes back. Um, but you'd imagine overall it'll be pretty much business as usual. I mean, what'll help is there's kind of no real... There's no real break now in terms of when they go in pretty quick order into a Carabao Cup final, into a Champions League last 16 tie against a very good team and into the business end of a season. So that might kind of focus the minds as well. So I think maybe initially a little sore, but I think pretty quickly the kind of reality of the yeah. day to day will get them over it. That's on the Irish front in and pretty big news breaking earlier today that the FEI and their counterparts in football associations of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have jointly bid for Euro 2028 rights for the European Championships, um, abandoning the 2030 World Cup bid, um, which I think is uh, understandable uh, considering the the feasibility study that was done. Um, This got a fairly hot reaction, mostly negative from what I've seen um, from Irish fans' perspective. I follow a couple of Scottish and Welsh guys, they were also a little bit uh, perplexed at the whole thing. Um, you know, basically, from the Irish point of view, I suppose, you know, you're looking at, you know, where do our priorities truly lie? You know, we're just coming out of decades of, of mismanagement um, within the FAI, you know, coming out, trying to come out of a, a financial black hole. So many problems um, across Irish football, be it grassroots level, you know, facilities, infrastructure, the League of Ireland, the domestic football scene. Um, and then to see us kind of, you know, dipping back into this, this, um, you know, what's often been called as a bit of a vanity project, project anytime um, there's a notion that Ireland um, have have any intention of, uh, of approaching a, an international tournament, be it uh, in football or, you know, the Olympics or, or whatever it may be. But, uh, what was your initial reactions to, to this one when it uh, broke this morning that Ireland come 2028 could be a, an international football host, at least in, in part? I think this one is suffering from a real sort of image problem in that this is the sort of thing that gets rolled out every now and again um, to much kind of puffing up by the relevant kind of government minister or Taoiseach of the day and then either disappears or the feasibility or success of it kind of gets scoffed out. I know they've scoped this one out now, apparently, and that that it's you know deemed to be more feasible than the 2030 World Cup. But I think there's a bit of a stink on this idea of a joint bid between ourselves and the UK. 
just because we've heard about it so much. It's kind of it's nearly like the you know the boy who called major tournament. Um, it's like over and over they say they're going to do it, and nobody believes that they're going to do it. Now that they are, I don't know if it's actually going to end up being all that fruitful for us. Um, like we know for a fact that that England don't have loads and loads of friends in that kind of international stage. They've been pretty, um, they've been embarrassed in a pretty high profile fashion that way before. Um, and like even from an Irish point of view, I mean, they're talking about the Aviva, Croke Park, encasement, and it's like two out of the three of those things. It's not even a soccer stadium. It's like, um, should we really be in a position to be bidding for something like this when two out of the three things the FAI are putting forward is something that they don't even own? Um, so it, like it feels a bit weird to me. I think it's going to have a little bit of an image problem, a little bit of a stink, and it does feel a bit kind of fur coat no knickers in that they're going for this really big, shiny thing. Um, for 2028 and then tonight they're releasing i know we're going to get into it, their strategic plan and it's kind of it feels nearly more like lip service to the league of ireland and infrastructure and a football and pyramid that we actually need in this country and um, so like if you read the replies to the fai thing it's like you know if laura coonsberg or giles corrin or ewan mckenna are after tweeting something and they're just getting piled on in the replies it's genuinely like that they're getting absolutely piled on it's just reply after reply after reply telling them how stupid an idea this is and i think it comes to a point where the mood music has to be read and like even and listen i mean i'm not saying that that journalists can be kind of won't bought or you know influenced to report in a way that's not true but there's not any journalists peddling a positive line about this they're reflecting the mood music and they're saying that, in general, the football public are not happy about it. Um, so it does feel like it's a little bit of a, I think you nailed it, Kev, a vanity project. It doesn't help that Jonathan Hill said that we're bidding with the other four UK associations. That does not help the kind of general idea of where the FAI is at the minute with an awful lot of outside influence in its senior positions. Um, so, like, I, I don't know. If, if it came here, I think people would eventually get behind you because... Major tournament, like we've never had a major tournament. Big internationals here are always exciting, but I don't know. I, it doesn't feel like something that people would buy into as readily because I think people are all too aware of the problems that have been sowed by the previous regime. This regime was supposed to be different. This regime was supposed to be more sensible and fix the problems and set a new FAI. This feels a little bit old FAI to me. Yeah, absolutely. I just don't see any basis for this bid at all. Not just the issues with Ireland, which, you know, Phil rightfully said we don't own two of the three national stadiums, but I don't think Northern Ireland has any stadium at all. I heard on the radio today that's officially, you know, regulated to host one of these tournaments. So you're basically ruling them out unless they can match up to the regulations. So it, it literally makes no sense to me. It, it feels like a heavy PR push. And as Phil said, the responses to the tweets today are all extremely negative, all about focusing. People would rather focus on, you know, improvements in League of Ireland grounds, um, grassroots football. And I just can't see the logic in getting involved in this again. Listen, we were unfortunate fortunate with COVID hitting um, to hosting last year, and that was a shame and, you know, was a big hit to the economy at the time but every time we get involved in one of these tournament bids it feels extremely hollow unnecessary we're totally not prepared for that at this moment in time and, and we won't be in six years time either so i just can't understand the logic at all it just seems like a, a heavy pr push um and you know i think phil highlighted everything with the issues there i i just can't see the logic to any of this at all um and i think it'll ultimately 
you know, end in failure as it, as it usually does. Um, and I think something like a third tier league of Ireland, improve our facilities, improve the, the grassroots facilities, you know, even my own club at home in Galway, they've improved Terryland Park in the last few years or Amy DC Park as it is now. And that sort of stuff is rather where I'd like Irish football to focus at at the moment. Cause I think if all these stadiums around the country could get, you know, an infrastructure boost, then they'd get a lot more fans in through the gates. And then we'd have a lot more players coming through who actually want to play in these grounds and build up from there because, you know, we have a lot of league of Ireland talent coming through at the moment, which is great, but we're still, missing out massively on on a huge amount of players coming through because the infrastructure and the setup just isn't there at the moment. So that's where I'd like to see the FAI focus their efforts and money at the moment. And these hollow bids for tournaments, which isn't, it'd be very exciting to see a tournament hosted here. But realistically, we get a handful of games if we go up against, you know, England and Wales in particular. Scotland have a couple of grounds as well that are very suitable. But as I said earlier, Northern Ireland don't have any grounds. We have one, maybe two. So I just don't see where the benefit comes to us at all, apart from the PR. It potentially gets the FAI. And I thought we were past that stage once John Delaney left. And, mm. you know, it just seems the same old, same old. Yeah, well, in fairness, the new CEO... Jonathan Hill is in former FA man, English FA, so no surprise really that uh, he's willing to, to get into bed with them, especially coming off the back of, of Euro 2020 and how they managed to kind of mishandle that in terms of Wembley and, and the final and you know, the, the bad press that came out of it. I think they're happy to have um, a couple of other uh, associations to kind of carry the load there. Um, but I mean, just like you said, in the, it's, it's, it's only going to be a handful of games it's likely only going to be the Aviva, possibly Croker. Um, I mean, it's, def- it's not going to be coming down to, to Cork or, or Galway or, or Limerick or any no, of those cities. And, I mean, and, and even getting Croker is such a challenge anyway. I mean, it's mm. just, it, I don't think it's worth the hassle. You know? Also, the games take place in the summer, which is exactly when the All-Ireland Finals now take place. Like June, July is now All-Ireland Final time. Um, and that's when the games in the tournament would be. So you have to convince the, FA, the GAA to give up their ground at the height of their new championship season and um, to a massive competitor that year. I mean, that that's a big challenge in itself before you even pay them. Yeah, and I mean, the FAI might, you know, want to use the Crow Park as a, you know, kind of flutter their eyelashes at UEFA. You know, we have an 82,000-seater stadium here. Yeah. You know, it adds to the bid, in, in fact, whereas, you know, that's the only realistic other sports ground that we have outside of the Aviva. Um, I mean, the IFA are going to have their own problems either developing Windsor Park to make that um, above the, the limitations in terms of um, attendance numbers or completely redeveloping Casement Park, which I think has been kind of put on the long finger for, for decades now and, and should have been done a lot longer or, or a lot long ago. Yeah, um, but that's the one they're kind of pitching, isn't it? As opposed to... Upgrading is, Windsor yeah. Park, so I, even that in itself is bizarre. So I just I can't understand the Northern Ireland angle in this at all, and I'm not saying it's it's their fault, but just it doesn't add up in terms of pitching for 2028 at all. Yeah, and I mean I I don't think it'll be on be beyond the realms of a, a hugely difficult task to host um, a couple of games. I mean it's just a bit few more than what we were originally going to do for for your 2020. Um, 
I don't think it's going to be a huge strain on on infrastructure or, or the country in any way. Or, but again, it's kind of optics, you know, where are the FEI's priorities? I mean, they're already kind of, you know, short-staffed to an agreed, you know, will they have the, the manpower to be able to kind of manage and juggle, you know, the preparations where you need to host an international tournament and all of the needs that we have um, locally with, with, with some of the things we'll get into shortly with the strategy plan. Um, that's been unveiled tonight, but I think come six years' time, we'll all be rare to go, and we'll all be delighted to have um, um, I don't know Switzerland versus uh, Belgium in India visa. Um, but um, I think the optics right now just fall as 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 the response online can be seen. The optics are just way off right now for for where for what the the FEI should be should be taken off as a too much they could chew really. Anything to add there, lads? I know I'm done. No, all good here. Before we get into the strategy that is being unveiled as we speak um, by the FEI, I suppose one of the other big talking points that has come out of the past couple of weeks has been the kind of shift in how we've seen young Irish talent um, flock and uh, and and depart the nest in terms of the uh, the Little League of Ireland. So. I suppose you know we're so used to seeing guys leave for for clubs around England um, and and the UK. Um, a number of you know Scottish teams have have pillaged over the past couple of years. Brighton have been a, a huge benefactor as well, taking some of the uh, the young Irish talent. Um, and it's it's a connection that's been there for for decades and decades really. I mean we're so used to uh, seeing Irish players go to English clubs. We're so used to hearing about lads who who got trials in 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 wherever in England and you know lads who couldn't make us. You know they 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 went over for a trial and came back with a tw- tail between their legs. But um, an interesting reports recently. Um, I think Michael Walker had a, a good article in the Athletic. Gavin Cooney also wrote about it. It's just how. Mm. Uh, it's kind of changed in the scope that since the introduction of Brexit, that has basically opened the door for for wider Europe, where there's teams in in Italy and and Belgium taking an interest in our in our Irish guys. There's scouts um, coming to our shores, or at least you know availing of uh, of the online streaming coverage that uh, they're able to kind of scout young Irish talent. Um, and we've we've seen that we've we've seen it materialise already. Cahill Heffernan off to AC Milan. James Abankwa is a is a really exciting one. He's heading to uh Udinese next season. Um there's reports recently that Festi Abasele, who's obviously already in England with Derby, but another guy who's kind of taken the eye of of a uh, of a European side at, at Udinese and he's been linked there as well. So um I mean it's not only them, there's there's links to, to, to teams around Europe. Um, obviously, with the the Brexit rule now, that I think if, if is it if you're if you're under eighteen, you essentially you you stay put, or you or you head uh, further afield, and it looks like uh, Europe is uh, is taking advantage of that. But uh, it's going to be an interesting one for Irish football. Um, I think probably better, uh, even though you know English football and, and British football isn't what it used to be known as, and you know in terms of. Uh, clogging each other up and down wet mucky fields and 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 little regard for for technical ability, but uh, it is an interesting one and it will be cool to see some Irish lads, you know, lining out with uh with Italian clubs and 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 maybe more as as the years go on here. Yeah, what what I found really fascinating about about Gav's story, particularly for the forty two, was 
the kind of juxtaposition between those kind of academy age players now going further afield and the guys who are between 18 and 23 who are now actually more attractive to uh, English clubs than perhaps they had been. So what because of the common travel area exception uh, to to, uh, to the UK's Brexit uh, regulations. So where we probably had loads of guys or relatively loads of guys under 18 previously going to UK academies, they are now going, as you said, to Serie A and, and, and further afield to European leagues. But the guys who are maybe 18 to 23 who perhaps weren't getting those moves out of the League of Ireland are now more attractive to UK clubs because we they qualify as an exemption, so they don't need a work permit. Eighteen to twenty three. So you're seeing a lot of those moves happen now. Now, not to you know top six Premier League teams, but you're seeing a lot happen to kind of uh, a lot of Scottish teams, a lot of upper half League One, bottom half Championship teams. There's kind of an interesting kind of bending away from the academy players, but maybe a bending towards in that kind of eighteen to twenty three. And it, it I, I think it makes for a quite an interesting opportunity it's quite an interesting time to be a, a young Irish player because if you're one of the lucky ones who gets your chance to, to go further afield like Carl Heffernan or, or whoever else to go and experience a new culture a new way of playing amazing if you're not you stay in the League of Ireland maybe a little longer than you would have done so if you're if you're a really top class underage player in the League of Ireland uh, setup you might get picked off kind of 16-17 Gavin Bazunu, for example, as kind of an outlier of somebody who's really, really excellent. Gavin would now either go abroad or stay in the League of Ireland and then make a step when he was 18, 19, 20, a little bit older. So I think it's actually quite interesting now where maybe you, instead of just defaulting to an academy in England, falling out after a couple of years and being back in the league by the time you're 23, you're either getting a really big culture change when you're quite young or maybe you're not moving across England until you're actually a little bit more ready, a little bit more mature. You've played a couple of years of men's football. So I think it's actually worked out well on the two fronts, the experience of the European game that the younger guys can get, and maybe more battle-tested, battle-hardened older players being able to go over to the AFL and the Scottish League, maybe when they're a little bit more ready for a step-up and people know a little bit more about what they are rather than just being a number in an academy padding out a year's intake. Yeah, absolutely. This feels like the time, really, for Irish football. Um, if you look at the setup we have at the moment, especially with Stephen Kenny, who's so open to bringing in players, regardless of the team they play for or, or the league they're playing in. I mean, would Ogbeni, as a Rotherham United player at 24 years old, relatively inexperienced, never capped at senior level for Ireland would he be getting a run out four or five years ago I, I really can't imagine that and then as Phil said we have teenagers being far more attractive to clubs abroad than they were previously so you really have that balance between getting that experience as a teenager in, in Syria or uh, in the Bundesliga that we've starting to see now with Conor Noss obviously being the, the main player over there for us um, and hopefully that continues but that 18 to 23 year old gap that needs to be filled now in English football, thanks to Brexit, is really there for the Irish players. And uh, it's been really fantastic to see how they've all developed. Uh, we text each other weekly about the performances of, you know, Bazunu in particular, but Ogbeni and, you know, even the lads playing under 23 Premier League um, starting lineups, Brighton, West Ham. They all have United players starting Arsenal as well. So we have about. 40 or 50 Ireland players now across Europe who are playing competitively every single week. And that 
can't be a bad thing for the senior team going forward. And I think it's just a case of if we make the right choices. You know, we talked about Leo Kanner at Tranmore as well, which is fantastic for them to sign him fully. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's really, really a good time for Irish football. And, and the fact that we have Stephen Kenny there as well, who just has, you know, much <laughs> bigger open mind than our previous managers, which which was unfortunate considering how narrow-minded they were at times in terms of requiring not just talent, but very focused on the experience element. And, you know, we're picking lads in their late 20s, early 30s who probably could have been phased out for younger players. I think we're we're over that hump now and um we've gotten through the worst with Kenny over his, you know, mediocre results yeah. in his first couple of years. And I think now we're starting to see really, really positive growth in terms of the Irish squad, in terms of the performances and and what we're seeing from Irish players weekly is really, really exciting and it's it's just really given me a lot of enthusiasm again from the national team. It was a real drain following them for a very long time, even going back to the trap Tony period, which was, even though it was successful on paper, it was it was a real struggle to get behind what he was trying to do or build. Uh, and again, under Martin O'Neill, it, it got very, very ugly by the end. So um, I think Kenny is delivering what we hoped he would. It took a lot longer than I would have expected, but, you know, um, we've gone through the playoff match in the past and, and how much that set us back and then COVID and injuries and players not being available. But if he has a full deck to play with and all these Irish players keep performing as well as they have been week after week, I think we're in really, really good shape. So I think the next five to 10 years are a very, very exciting time for Irish football. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, just by, you know, following some of the accounts on Twitter, I mean, a day doesn't go by really where we're not seeing a good news story about an Irish player, whether they're up and coming or they're already established. Um, I mean, in the past couple of days alone, we have uh, Callum Kevin at, at Middlesbrough, who's been um, shortlisted for Premier League 2 Player of the Month for January. Um, Michael Obafemi is back in the goals at Swansea. Um, Jamie McGrath obviously got his move away from St Mirren up to uh, Wigan where they're um, competing for uh, for League One. Um, Evan Ferguson is, is in and around the, the senior side at Brighton. Conor Ronan is scoring goals. He seems to be going really well at St mm-hmm. Mirren. Um, he could be a, a dark horse for, for the March squad, I think, considering how well he suited Kenny's um, team for the under-21s. Um, Teo jo- Adam Marola. Josh Cullen, Captain Anderlecht as well, yeah. Yeah, like there's positive stuff happening all over, really. Everywhere, and then obviously uh, Theo Adam Marola making his uh, Crystal Palace debut, which you know to have a left back uh, breaking through at a, a Premier League club uh, and getting on on a team sheet, uh, albeit in the FA Cup, uh, is very exciting to see, especially in those kind of positions where we don't necessarily see a huge amount of depth coming through. I mean, it is a very exciting time for for Ireland and. I mean, I, that goes without mentioning the likes of Queeving Kelleher, who's getting minutes at Liverpool, um, likely to start the, the, the Carling Cup final in a couple of weeks' time. Phil, I mean, um, you know, we have the right manager. He's already blooded a huge amount of, of young talent. It seems like the conveyor belt isn't showing any signs of stopping. So, I mean, it's easy to complain about the FAI and, and their priorities and, and strategies, but it does seem like there are lads there coming through pretty quickly and next couple of years should be should be very interesting to say the least uh, absolutely I, th- I think though it, it means that the next couple of years are very important as well so absolutely we've got a generation here that while we're not saying they're you know top six Premier League players to a man 
they are an exciting generation of very technical, very capable, very like easy to like, very affable players who I think could be a big part in kind of reigniting how we feel about, about the Irish football team or how the wider football public feels about the football team. But I think it's important that this isn't seen as job being done because we've got a generation through now and maybe kind of a half a generation behind them. Um, and you know, Brexit has created a few nice kind of pathways for us here. I think there needs to be it, this moment needs to be seized on, um, and like you know, we're going to talk about it in a couple of minutes. But there needs to be proper plans put in place. There needs to be a director of football appointed very quickly, who sets out a proper agenda uh, and framework for Irish football for the next kind of ten years that helps capitalise on this. Because how we got into the situation we did at the start of Kenny's reign is the most myopic short short termism over and over and over again and wringing every drop out of a really good generation of players. And that can't happen here again. I think we have to make sure that these guys and girls are followed by the next generation of guys and girls and followed by the next one. And there's a pathway in place that we know we're not reliant on changes in Brexit regulations or Liverpool subkeeper being from Cork or any of the other circumstances that have helped us to this point. Uh, or, you know, become too reliant on Serie A clubs raising their players rather than English clubs. Um, so I, I absolutely agree, Kev. It's really encouraging and there's a great point for Irish football, but I think that makes it really important to build on because the last time we had a good generation of players, we didn't build on it and it left us in a very, very kind of low place. So that needs to be avoided now because the next time it'll be even harder to step back up from, I think. Absolutely. Um and I suppose it brings us on to the uh, the FEI strategy for 2025 that is being announced this evening. Um, I mean, it's all buzzwords and it's all kind of stuff that a lot of people would have highlighted 20, 10, 15, 20 years ago as, as stuff that Ireland should be have high on the priority list and for reasons that are quite obvious at this point um, were never achieved or never put on any sort of uh, indicator for, for what Ireland should be aiming towards. But... I mean, say what you like about the the uh, Euro twenty twenty eight bid. You do hope that we are now in a state where the FEI will be looking at this, and something that they'll be you know put everything they can to muster results. Um, just go go through a couple of the uh, the the KPIs quickly. Um, some some targets are a little bit unusual in terms of a little bit outside of their control, at least their immediate control. So they want to get. Um, they want to be. Um, uh, they want to qualify for Euro twenty twenty four. The men's Euro twenty twenty four, I suppose, is, is the first one. They want to qualify for either of the women's twenty twenty three World Cup or the twenty twenty five European Championships. They want to be in the top thirty ranking in terms of uh, European leagues for the League of Ireland by twenty twenty five. And reading the uh, response to that from uh, some people who were quite close to uh, European coefficients that seems uh, completely uh, impossible uh, even if they had an unbelievable couple of years between now and then um, so you know sort of stuff that they might be you know pulling out of out of, of what might sound low over what's completely achievable um, but in terms of the report itself uh, a nicely presented 68 page report um, in PDF form they have six key pillars um, which again are all kind of bullet points that people have been 
roaring and shouting about for, for the last 20 years. Um, so we have transformed football facilities and infrastructure, where, which is an obvious one, something uh, everyone has been crying out for. Um, they've drive grassroots football as the heart of the game, nurture football pathways for all, develop the full potential of football for women and girls, frame a new future for the League of Ireland, and build international success. Um, so I dug a little bit deeper into uh, the League of Ireland one in particular and see what they said. So uh, according to the PDF report here, so they would say between 2022 and 2025, we'll be radical, innovative and open in our approach to growing and developing both men's and women's League of Ireland football and plan and support the transformation of League of Ireland club facilities. And that includes stadia, training grounds and academies in partnership with all key stakeholders. So, um I mean, they've, they, they've written down here, uh, it's something a lot of people around the league have been crying out for for, for years and decades. Uh, you know, a lofty ambition, but hopefully one that you'd like to see come to fruition over the next uh, three years. Yeah, in, in a professional capacity, I did a little bit of work um, around the League of Ireland the back half of last year. I spoke to people within the FAI, to journalists, to players, fan groups, Manager spoke to kind of all all kind of stakeholders across the league, and this was the point that came up more than any other as to what the league needs to move forward as a sustainable concern for fans and for players was improved facilities across the board. So it's heartening to see that it's its own pillar, and then it's also referenced pretty heavily within within the League of Ireland pillar. Um, obviously, like you said, this is something that's probably twenty years out of date. There's arguably there's one stadium really properly fit for purpose i think in the league of ireland premier division uh, and in terms of like something that you'd be comfortable bringing like a family audience to um and outside of that you're probably kind of scratching around for de- like you know degrees of kind of unacceptableness i think so i i think it is a no-brainer to have that listed very high i i, I don't with infrastructure projects, and listen, there's other people that will speak better to this than I will, it feels weird to have them in a three-year plan because, you know, like how much realistically is going to happen within this three-year plan. I think it should be a very key focus for the FAI into the medium term. But three years feels quite short term for me, so I don't know how much they're actually going to have achieved by the time the remit of this report lapses, hopefully plenty. But I, I do think, just from my own kind of conversations with people in and around the league in the last kind of six to eight months this is the central issue i think as much as pathways and you know pyramids and everything else literally facilities where they train where they play and where fans can come and congregate and see and grow the league and this is what needs to be addressed i think to have the league as a going concern so it is good to have such a focus on it and as you said kev it's long overdue hopefully they do it in intelligent and smart ways you know, parking room city councils where relevant, you know, fan groups where relevant, wherever things can be done in a sustainable way that protects the infrastructure for the use of, of the clubs and the grassroots as much as possible. Uh, I, th- I think it's good to see it focus, uh, such a focus on it, and hopefully the, the results uh, are, are kind of in line with that. Yeah, I mean, stadium development is the key here. Uh, we saw once Tala was developed properly, I mean, we even got Real Madrid here in 2009. And they're not going to rock up in Turlan Park with one stand and the other, you know, covered in shed. So um, I'm happy that they realize that that's the issue going forward. 
you look at the purpose and enrich the lives of all through positive football experiences. So there is a lot of waffles still there in terms of what they're trying to do. But if they can support the development of the female game and listen, my company uh, sponsors the under 13 Grace on Girls, for example, and they've put a fabulous um, team and infrastructure together in terms of how they're going to develop going forward at all underage level. Um, and I'd love to think that that's something that's happening across the country in terms of coaches, parents, and hopefully support from the FEI as well as from local companies, obviously. Um, because when you do get involved and sponsor these types of teams, it does make a huge difference in terms of how they're able to progress their careers and their interest in the game. Um, I think FEI is still missing a trick in terms of how they're communicating this. It's all very focused on you know, as you said earlier, buzzwords and inspiration, enrichment, communities. Yes, that's what it's all about, but it's actually creating a platform for young players to get involved in football. And that's the only reason and the only excuse they'll have for development. Everything else is just aftermath, really. So um, it's definitely a positive step forward, but there's still a lot more to be done in terms of integrating both male and females at their young teenage um, age and then making sure that they actually have the facilities they have to improve going forward but it, you know, it's promising that they've highlighted those issues now um, but again this should have happened 15-20 years ago when it was very obvious that we had a very talented group of youths coming through who didn't have the infrastructure um, or the coaches in place to develop as we would have hoped um, and definitely didn't have that equality between male and female uh, teams so again it's hopefully they learn their lessons from the past yeah and i mean i, I don't think there'll be any appetite for this one failing um you know whatever you want to say about the prior um fei under john delaney i think now that this is out there um it's been set out you know for everyone to see i think if they don't at least hit on some of these objectives um, and some of these six key pillars that they've aligned, I think, you know, there, there will be no coming back from that. I think people have lost their patience. And now that they've kind of set their stall out, um, ap any appetite, uh, you know, any sign of failure, I think, will be will be held up to account, um, which is, you know, something that hasn't been done in, in decades past. And like you said, and it is great to see um, a specific pillar lined out for, for the women's game to kind of build on some of the success we've seen at international level and, um, you know, put them uh, alongside the men's game, um, which is, is something we want to see. Uh, and another pillar that's been uh, specified and its last pillar is to build for international success, um, which I suppose, you know, it's something in fairness to the FBI, um in, in, in the short term, a little bit outside of their control. I mean, they do have a pretty talented group of players. They have, um, Stephen Kenny there uh, it looks like he's going to be extended uh, going to the next campaign you'd imagine um, you know an announcement could be due maybe towards summertime that, that he will be kept on uh, just looking at the, 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 the strategy here that between 2022 and 2025 we will be consistently competitive at all age levels we'll commit to delivering the optimum level of on-peeled contact and playing time and provide the highest standards of facilities, medical performance analysis, logistical, operational, and administrative support. 
um, and then just, you know, revitalizing the relationship and connection between our fans. Um, so a lot of key in performance indicators, I suppose the main one there being UEFA Euro 2024 qualification being the very mm-hmm. first one for the men's senior team. Um, and that was struck a little bit of a blow if we considered the news that Anthony Barry has left his post. He obviously came in this time last year after Damien Duff departed the, the backroom team. Um, very highly rated coach at Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel um, and did a hell of a job. And I think every report that came out of um, about him, every kind of sound that came out from the players that they loved working underneath him, um, the results eventually kind of you know, explain themselves. The performances as well seem to um, get better and better the longer he was in the role. So it does feel like it's a it's a big pair of uh, shoes that Kenny needs to fill in time for for these March internationals and, and going into the summer ahead of the uh, Euro 2024 qualifiers. Yeah, completely. And you just worry that, you know, the shelf gets a little bare after a little while, given the kind of relatively quick clip at which Kenny has gone through backroom team members. Um, like through no fault of his own really or at least we don't know whose fault it is around the kind of Duff and, and Alan Kelly stuff but um, like th- there's not loads and loads of people for us to draw down on it's not you know an inter-county manager picking out from an endless list of former uh, like heroes to, to fill out his selectors panel um, like D- Duff going was seen as a blow Barry actually came in and maybe took it to a level above what people were even expecting given that he he, he was working with, with uh, Thomas Tuchel and then in an environment as kind of rarefied as Chelsea um, and you, you just worry that you know the numbers of Irish coaches active at the minute who might take on that sort of that sort of profile and that doesn't have to be Irish but just that the kind of easy route in is true to an Irish coach that is kind of relatively bare and then you look around at people with Barry's profile in top six clubs and I don't think too many of them are going to be jumping up and down at the idea of coming to work for any national team never mind one like Ireland and so you, you just worry that we kind of had a bit of a gem there and that completely understandably He's from his point of view and his kind of coaching progression, he's kind of moving onwards and upwards. Um, and you know, you'd hope. And like Kenny's made some very astute uh, appointments so far. I mean, Duff was a great one to begin with, and Barry's been great as well. I, I suppose you just worry how many more rabbits can be pulled out of a hat before there is a little bit of a drop off. You'd hope that somebody's going to come in because, as you said, it's going to be very important. Uh, Barry was given a lot of credit, a lot of set piece stuff, and a lot of the kind of more kind of clever kind of gimmicky things we were doing he's been getting a lot of credit for but you, you see the way the players talk about him and you like listen somebody operating in in the environment he is in at Chelsea just be, has to be necessarily a good coach or he wouldn't have survived um, and so losing him you can't be dressed up as anything other than a little bit of a blow and hopefully Kenny can pull another rabbit out of a hat because you just you you fear that he's after pulling it off a couple of times now, and maybe the next one mightn't be as good. But I, I hope I made eat my words there, uh, because it would be great to get somebody of a similar caliber. Yeah, massive blow, and I was hoping maybe somebody like Chris Hutton, but it looks like he's off to Ghana, which is mm. bizarre in itself. But um, like for me, there was a huge change in the Irish approach um, and tactical IQ once we went from Duffer to. Uh, Barry so I think it's a massive loss I think in modern day football your assistant manager is equally important as your manager in terms of these you know coaching roles that are now being filled and we've seen so many 
national and international teams suffer on the back of mediocre um, assistant managers. And I think, you know, Kenny, even though he's a very hands-on coach in general, I think he relies heavily on his you know, on his number two. So for, for him to lose Barry... And and the timing when we were kind of building momentum, as we spoke about earlier, is is a really massive blow, I think. And nobody is irreplaceable, but you know, looking across the board, I just can't see anybody who can come in and have the impact that Barry had. So it's it's really a massive blow for us. And then, you know, hopefully we get it right. Um, you know, I was really disappointed as well when Alan Kelly left, but uh, I think this is an even bigger blow than that. So. Um, you know, hopefully we can find somebody. Um, it'd be great if it was somebody from League of Ireland, even. But um, yeah, it's a massive blow. In fairness, I don't think you can begrudge him uh, going to no. Belgium, <laughs> number one ranked in the world, a World Cup at the end of the year. Yeah, um, it just shows we had it right, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what it is, you know, in retrospect, it was a huge coup at the time. Um, and you know, he was linked with Frank Lampard at, at Everton the last couple of weeks. Um, I mean, a hell of a coach, and I think his stock has risen coming out of the Ireland camp, which is which is not a lot, not a lot of people can say that. Mm. Um, but I think you know, if we were to take one good thing away from this, I suppose is we know. I think he might have set a standard that we know we're capable of now, and there won't be any kind of shying away from that. So, you know, the players will expect a certain standard coming into camps now that he has set. And if the, his, you know, successor, whoever it may be, or even Stephen Kenny, you know, will know that what is expected of of his coach to be able to get the best out of his guys. So, you know, hopefully he's he's he is leaving the camp in a much better place than than he found it and has set uh, a standard that uh, that everyone will be aiming to achieve in in the next couple of months. That's it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you've missed some of the episodes over the past couple of weeks where we covered the crypto mania that is taking over football with Martin Kaledine, we would absolutely recommend you go back and revisit that since it's showing no signs of stopping over the past couple of weeks in the world of football. We have loads of big plans in the pipeline, some covering big stories in the world of football. And we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. Take care. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>